All right, well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to our Sunday worship. Glad to have you here in the cafeteria. Happy early Thanksgiving for all of you who will be celebrating this week with your family and friends. Before we look into today's passage, just want to preview a couple of things that's happening in our church this upcoming weeks. Again, looking forward to next week with our baptism. Uh, if you're a member of this church, we hope this could really be a time where we celebrate our two brothers who will be getting baptized. It's, uh, if you guys know, it's uh, Jace, our brother Jason and Kim and also Sam Lee. And so we look forward to just celebrating that time together as a church. Also, as mentioned earlier, this is going to be the, uh, we're going to be doing a new sermon series next week. And I just want to preview what the Sundays are going to look like these next few weeks. Our church, we do it where we go through different books of the Bible. We also go through some topical series and we also go through what we call practices. And so in the upcoming weeks, just to show on the screen, let's see right there. Next, as mentioned in December, we're going to be going through the book of Malachi. Oh, is it up there? Oh, it's still loading. So we're going to go into the book of Malachi starting in November, and that's going to be something that we'll be looking at for the next five weeks or so. Then we have our Christmas service that's going to take place on Christmas Eve on December 24th, so I hope you could join us for that. And then in January, we're going to be doing a topical series on prayer, and we really want to call our church to pray and practice prayer together as a community, so we'll look into that. And then in February, all the way to June, we're going to be looking at the book of Exodus together. So that's going to be like four or five months or so, so look forward to that. That's going to be just a little bit of preview of what we're doing. Uh, just know we try to really intentionally plan the calendar year when it comes to the preaching calendar for us to just to have the rhythm of going through books of the Bible, but also looking at specific topics and also practicing as well. And as mentioned, today is the last part of our sermon series that we have been going through. It's called The Journey of Faith. And this sermon series that we've been experiencing or talking about, we've been, it's mainly to talk about six stages of what we see like the spiritual life looks like. Uh, this is the chart that we've been journeying through. And again, the whole goal of this series, it was threefold. It was one, just for you to recognize, number one, where are you in your journey of faith? I know sometimes it could feel a little bit fuzzy of like, how am I supposed to grow as a Christian? And we hope this could kind of help you name your stage. Also to help you know how to move forward. We hope that for some of us here, what you need is you need to read the scriptures more. You need to practice prayer more. For some of you to grow, you actually need to surrender. Surrender your will, surrender your pride. We're all at different places, and some of us just need something more specific of how we can move forward. And the third goal is we hope that for us, we could empathize with other people. Everyone is at different stages of the journey, and we just could hope that this could be a paradigm for us to recognize we're all kind of coming and starting in different places and just have a lot of empathy for other members in this church. Now today, we're going to be looking at the last stage of the journey, the destination of where God's trying to lead us. And so to help us look at that, we're going to be looking at a passage in the New Testament, Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 to 26. It's in our programs, but if you have your Bibles, you can turn there as well. And here at our church, we believe when we read the scriptures, God is alive and speaking to us. So can we all rise together as we read from Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 to 26? This is the Apostle Paul. He's writing to the church in Philippi. He writes starting verse 12. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually advanced the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to everyone else that my imprisonment is because I am in Christ. Most of the brothers have gained confidence in the Lord from my imprisonment and dare even more to speak the word fearlessly. To be sure, some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. These preach out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The others proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely thinking that they will cause me trouble in my imprisonment. What does it matter? 
only that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, because I know this will lead to my salvation through your prayers and help from the Spirit of Jesus Christ. My eager expectation and hope is that I will not be ashamed about anything, but that now, as always, with all courage, Christ will be highly honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Now, if I live on in the flesh, this means fruitful work for me, and I don't know which one I should choose. I am torn between the two. I long to depart and be with Christ, which is far better, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Since I am persuaded of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that, because of my coming to you again, your boasting Christ Jesus may abound. This is the reading of God's word. Let me pray for us before we begin. Lord, speak to us today. May your spirit stir. And as we conclude this sermon series, help us, O Lord, to know the pathway and the destination of where you're leading your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Anybody here in this room know what the most challenging years of marriage often is? The, the, the pain points of marriage where these are the, the, the years that couples most likely separate and most likely struggle the most. There's uh, three windows that therapists say that you have to watch out for these windows because these are the difficult seasons of marriage where, again, marriages often don't last. Here's the first window, years one to three. That's the first window of a lot of pain and hardships in marriage because when you get married, those first three years, you learn who your spouse really is. You had an idea of who your spouse was, and now you're finding out the reality of your spouse is. You had an idea of what marriage was. Now you're experiencing the reality of marriage. And so the big struggle of years one to three of marriage is just expectations versus reality. That's why if you ever notice on the news, whenever you see celebrities separate, it's usually the first three years of marriage because it's hard to match your expectations in reality. That's the first window that's challenging for married couples. Here's the second window that's challenging for married couples. When you first have kids, When you first have kids, does your marriage radically change? You shift from romantic partners to business partners, and your kid is the business. You're learning to work together. You're seeing a side of your partner that you never saw before. The nature of your marriage has radically shifted. You are emotionally changing. You are physically changing. And so the question is, can you love this new version of your spouse? And so a lot of married couples, they struggle. When the children are young, it's really hard to stay married and to stay in love with each other. And here's the third third window, the third struggle that married couples go through that's really hard. Empty nesters. Once the kids leave, once the business is over, do you still love each other? Do you still want to stay around together? Because oftentimes you realize, oh my gosh, we've been business partners for so long that we don't even know who the other person is. And so that's why a lot of, even our parents, they struggle after we go to college and we get older because they haven't really, they only kind of stay together for the kids. And so those are the three pain points, years one to three, when you first have kids, and when you're empty nesters. Those are the struggles that married couples often go through. Conversely, though, do you guys know when the best years of marriage is? Like, when is, like, the peak where marriage is, like, the happiest and the couple is the most satisfied Penn State University, they did a study where they surveyed over 2,000 different couples, all older. And you know when the best year unanimously it was? After 20 years. 
After 20 years, that's when marriage peaks. After 20 years, that's when married couples, they often spend the most time together, even more than their dating phase. They just always hang out. That's when they enjoy each other's company a lot more. That's when they have a lot of fun together, which is so contrary to what we see on TV. You think like they're like grumpy and they're like sick of each other, and that happens throughout marriage. But something about year 20, if you're able to make it to that time, it's like this golden period where the married couples, they have this deep level of appreciation for each other, where they feel super attached to one another, and where they feel like there's this true oneness that takes place. It doesn't happen with every married couple, but the ones who endure, the ones who have healthy marriages, year 20 and above, those are like the golden years of marriage. And this is similar to the experience of what it means to follow Jesus. When you follow Jesus, there are seasons of life following him where it's exciting. There are series where it's tough. There are seasons where you're doubting. There are seasons where you want to back away. There are seasons where you're kind of almost done with your faith. But man, if you hang on, if you keep journeying with Jesus in this journey of faith, what happens is the best time with Jesus, it comes towards the end. Or we describe it as stage six. Stage six, if we have it on screen right here, this is described by different Christians as the life of love or union with Christ. The gospel, when you believe and trust in Jesus, you are objectively united with Jesus. But stage six, this is when you experience that union with Jesus all the time. It's like that old married couple where you're just together and you feel one with one another. Stage six is the end of the journey of faith. Most Christians, they don't experience this stage, but if you do, it's usually like in your 50s, 60s, or 70s. You are so one with Christ in this stage because you don't just believe you're loved by God, you know you're loved by God. It's just implanted in your heart. You lose yourself in this stage, but because you lost yourself, you found yourself. We don't fear man's opinion anymore at all, but you fear God. You don't renounce your possessions. You still have stuff like your home and material, but you're not attached to them anymore. If you lose it, it's totally okay. You're not perfect at this stage. We're not Wesleyans, where Wesleyans believe that there's perfection that happens in the earth. No, that, we don't believe that, uh, at least in our church. But you are content at this stage. There's this contentment with whatever happens in life. It's all good. People in stage six, you could spot them because they're kind of weird. There are people where they're not worried about the things you're worried about. They are not attached to things that you're attached to. They're so different than the rest of the world because there's almost like this transcendence of life has happened to them. Imagine the best version of yourself, the most free, the most worry-free, the most loving, the most caring person. That's stage six. Very rare to meet people like that. I've often only read about people who experience this. Eugene Peterson, I read his biography. I'm like, oh, that sounds like stage six. This like peace that he had throughout the end of his life. Tim Keller, when he was near death and you just read his interviews, you're like, wow, this person, he looks at life differently in the face of death. It feels like this peace and this calmness, even though he was about to pass away. That was, to me, stage six. Or a little bit closer to home, Lena's grandmother, uh, she's, she's a faithful follower of Jesus. She's like over 90 years old. And every time I see her, I'm like, wow, you're either getting really old where you're so different and don't understand what's going on. Or I think more likely, she's just been walking with Jesus so long that she's at this place of this like, peace and calm and it's all good. And I think a lot of us have grandmas like that. 
They're just in the presence of God. This is stage six. And even though we have real life examples like this, is there any, anywhere we see this type of faith in the Bible? And I think Philippians 1 is a great illustration of what stage six faith looks like. The Apostle Paul, he wrote this letter to the Philippians. And the reason why he wrote this letter is because the Apostle Paul, if you're familiar with the New Testament, his whole desire in his adult life was to spread the gospel by planting different churches. And one church he planted was in the city of Philippi. And when he planted his church in Philippi, afterwards he's on his missionary track and then he gets arrested for being someone who was evangelizing and so forth. And now Paul, he's in a Roman jail. He's been in prison for two years. And the Philippian church, they send Paul a gift. And they want to figure out, hey, is Paul doing okay? And Paul, he sends a letter back to the church of Philippi, which is Philippians, the, what we have in our Bibles. And Paul lets the Philippian church know, hey, I'm in jail, and I'm not just surviving, I am thriving here. Like, Paul is doing very well in jail. And the reason why Paul is able to do well in this setting is because Paul's faith, it was not stagnant. His faith was always growing. Paul converted at the road to Damascus where he saw the reality of God. He grew in his understanding of Jesus. He served people. He suffered. He surrendered. And now we see Paul in a place in prison where his faith is just powerful. It is a powerful faith that's able to help him experience so much contentment despite the circumstances that he's in. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, what does this faith look like for us? How can we have a faith like Paul here where it helps us to transcend any circumstance that we are in? And the hope is as we read Philippians 1, we could recognize that this is so far for a lot of us. Like when you read, like for me to live is Christ and to die is gain, just know for a lot of Christians, we just say that, but do you really believe that? And a lot of us, it's far away from a reality for us. But I hope we could see that as we read this passage, it's almost the equivalent of watching a master piano player playing this crazy piece of Beethoven music, and we're just learning chopsticks. And for us, it might feel discouraging, like, dude, that seems so impossible. But the hope is that if you keep journeying with God, you can play Beethoven. The same Spirit of God that filled the Apostle Paul is the same Spirit of God that fills each and every one of you who are in Christ. You can have faith like this that transcends all circumstances, but there are a couple things about this faith that we have to recognize what it entails. To have a faith like this is three things that we're going to learn. Number one is you need to have a faith that recognizes the ways of God. It's a faith that trusts the ways of God in your life. Secondly, it's a faith that recognizes there is gain in death. Death is not just loss, it is gain. And lastly, it's a faith that recognizes the way of true life. There's a true way of living that this faith opens you up to. So the ways of God, gain and death, the way of true life. First, to have this type of faith, we need a faith that recognizes the ways of God. So again, the Apostle Paul, he is in a Roman prison cell. And it's, I watch, by the way, I watch prison documentaries all the time. I don't know why. I just have a fascination with life in prison. And when I look at it, I'm like, you know, that's actually interesting. The, the jail culture and what they eat and so forth. Roman jail is totally different than all those documentaries. When Paul was imprisoned, he was in a situation that was not fun at all. For example, Paul, back then in the first century, he was chained to a Roman guard 24-7. So he was literally chained and attached to some type of Roman guard. So Paul, when he's writing this letter, he's not alone. This guard is sitting next to him. Paul, he can't go to the bathroom alone. This Roman guard is going to be chained with him in the bathroom. Paul is never alone. This is an introvert's nightmare. He's just always with somebody all the time. 
And not only that, Paul, by being in jail, he's not able to do what he was called to do, where he felt passionate about, which is to spread the gospel by planting churches and letting unknown, unreached people be able to be reached. That was Paul's passion. But he's stuck in prison, unable to do that. His whole life has changed these past two years. And not only that, Paul, for two years, he is facing the prospect of death. He is awaiting trial. He's going to stand before a Roman judge. And what happens is he might be released or he might be executed. So he just has the death looming over him. If I were Paul and I were in this situation and I was able to write you all a letter about my situation, I'd probably share like, dude, this is totally not like the documentaries. I'd share about my condition. I would probably ask for, this is my prayer. If you could pray for me, find me a lawyer. How do you get me out? Like those would be the main thoughts in my brain in my letter. But Paul, throughout the letter of Philippians, you know what the main theme of Philippians is? If you just summarize Philippians in one word, the main theme, rejoice. It's the main theme of Philippians. He repeats this word, rejoice, 14 times throughout this four-chapter letter. And it's not Paul just being positive in his thinking. It's not Oprah Winfrey type of theology, but why does Paul rejoice? If you look in the flip, a couple examples, in chapter three, verse one, Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. Chapter four, verse four, rejoice in the Lord always. Chapter four, verse 10, I rejoiced in the Lord. He's always rejoicing in the Lord. Why is Paul able to rejoice in the Lord like this? especially in prison. Well, Paul, he knows something. He knows something and he believes something that we just here just intrinsically kind of know. And he, what he understands about God is that God, he's able to turn any circumstance and change it into something great. Look at verse 12 to 13, what Paul says in our passage. Paul says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, what has happened to me has actually advanced the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to everyone else that my imprisonment is because I'm in Christ. Why does Paul mention, you know, all the imperial guards, they now know the gospel? Like, why does he say that? Remember Paul's passion. It's to spread the gospel by planting churches. Paul's not able to do that anymore, but what's so funny is now here he is in a Roman prison chained up to a Roman guard, and the Roman guards, they change every few hours. And these guards are now forced to listen to Paul talk about the gospel. It's like, holy cow, like this group that he would have never had access to, he has access to, and he's going to share with them about Jesus. Paul would have never had planned to spread the gospel this way, and yet here he recognizes God brought me here to share the gospel to these Roman guards, and they all are being exposed to it. And that would have never had happened unless he was in jail. Not only that, but notice Paul, he recognizes God. He's not just doing something in these circumstances, but he's doing something in Paul. In verses 18 to 19, look what it says. Paul says, yes, and I will continue to rejoice because I know this will lead to my salvation through your prayers and help from the spirit of Jesus Christ. Really fascinating. He says, through this experience, it's going to lead to my salvation. A lot of translations, they go, what does that mean, salvation? You being in prison leads you to being saved. That's what they translate as deliverance. ESV, NIV translates it that way. But the word for salvation, it's that word that church people we know. It's to be come before the Lord in his presence to be saved. How does prison make you saved? And this is where we have to put on our theology one-on-one hats. It's very mature Christianity thinking where Paul, he's pretty much thinking uh, contrary to what churches believe today, which is when we think of salvation, we think of the past. Jesus died for your sins. You are now saved. It was a past moment. The New Testament though, they describe salvation a little bit differently. If you look on the screen here, 
Keep passing. Oh, keep accept that one. The New Testament describes salvation as this. You were saved, past tense, you were justified. You're being saved, present tense, sanctification, and you're going to be saved, future tense, glorification. The New Testament all describes all this under the umbrella of salvation. And Paul, when he's describing himself in prison, this is his paradigm. I'm in prison, and this is saving me, i.e., this is transforming me, making me, becoming more peaceful, love, caring, humble, more like Jesus. He recognizes God is using this moment to change me. I am being saved through this. And that's why he's rejoicing. Matthew Henry, he's a commentator, and he looks at this passage and he says, you know what Paul is recognizing here? Paul is recognizing that God, he is the ultimate alchemist. You guys know what alchemist is? Back in the Middle Ages, there's all these like useless metals everywhere, like lead and whatever might be there. And the people would ask, like, is there anything we could do to transform this metal? Transform it to something like valuable, like gold. And so what people did, so this is like the process, if you go back to the slide, this is what alchemy is, the process of turning base metals into gold. And so there is this theory where they're trying to like somehow figure out the secret. How can you turn lead into gold, something valuable? Of course, they never discovered that. But what Matthew Henry says about Paul is, this is what he's saying about God. He recognizes God as the ultimate alchemist. Whatever situation you're in, no matter how useless it feels, no matter how pointless it is, God has the ability to transform that into gold. Your circumstances into gold, or even through the circumstances, your character is being transformed into gold. Have you ever seen that happen in your life before? Where something happened that you just did not like, but God used it for gold? Back in the 1980s, a lot of Koreans immigrated to the United States in California, and they all were located in specific regions. If you went to LA, a lot of the Koreans, they immigrated in K-Town. If they went to the OC, they all immigrated in Fullerton. If you went to the Inland Valley, they all immigrated in Diamond Bar, Roland Heights. You know, my parents immigrated in the 1980s. You know where they immigrated to? Glendora. Yeah, nobody knows what that is. Glendora is this random small town, and we were the only Asian family that was there. And I remember when I was there in Glendora, I experienced what maybe some of you might experience if you were in those random towns, a lot of marginalization, a lot of people mispronouncing my name. I was known as Thomas Huang my whole life. It's Huang, but I was known as Huang, and I even adopted that last name pronunciation for a long time. I felt really weird eating Asian food, having Asian culture, because that was just the environment I grew up in. And I remember because of that background that I experienced, I actually grew up with a lot of resentment towards Glendora. I actually remember, you know American Idol? Sometimes when you win, they show your hometown. He's from this town. I was like, I will never, if I win American Idol, show Glendora. It'll be Irvine that's going to celebrate me. It'll be like Buena Park or whatever it might be. Because I had a lot of resentment towards the way I was raised. I had a resentment towards my parents. Like, man, like of all the places in, the, in, the, in California, like why Glendora? Like, I wish I just went to Sunny Hills or Diamond Bar High School. I could just be normal like everybody else. That's how I felt for a long time. Now, and I still, at this age, I recognize my childhood. It still, you know, had its rough upbringings and so forth. But it's weird. I actually don't resent my parents anymore. And I don't really resent Glendora anymore. I would gladly welcome them to my American Idol celebration. It's all good. And the reason why is because I actually look back thinking, you know, despite the troubles of being raised in Glendora, 
it all led to where I'm at now, which I think a lot of you could resonate with. Like I realized, and some of you know the story, you know, I met my wife through a mutual friend in college, and I met that mutual friend through another friend in college who I met through a friend in Glendora. If I never was in Glendora, I would have never had met my wife and I wouldn't be here the way I am right now with married with three kids. That alone, I'm like, huh, fascinating. In fact, being raised in Glendora, I realized like, wow, that, made, that shaped me in this interesting way where because I was always on the outside, I was just kind of forced, like, well, who am I talk to? Just read my books. And what do I do right now? I just read books. That's like my life these days. I'm very, I just observe people all the time. I'm just very observant because that's how I was almost forced to. It's kind of sad growing up, just watching people. But that's what I do for a living. I just like watch people. I'm just like, oh, this is how human beings work. This is how they operate. And it just kind of shaped me. I'm very mindful of people who feel marginalized in our church, people who are new, people searching for community, people who feel like they don't belong. Like there's like this sensitivity chip that I just have. And I'm just like, you know, if I didn't grow up in Glendora, I wouldn't even notice those people. In other words, I look back going, God used this circumstance that wasn't really something I would ask for, but he turned it into something gold. The circumstances he turned to gold, he's turning me into gold through that. And stage six, when you experience faith with God long enough, even though you experience a lot of hardship, you can rejoice in the present hardship because you have a God who you trust, he's turning this to gold. Haven't you heard so many stories where people, something tragic happens to them, And they are looking back at that moment going, I would never had asked for that. But man, I wouldn't have changed anything because I learned so much. Middle age, I read an article about a middle-aged woman who was diagnosed with cancer. I mean, imagine if you're in your 20s or 30s diagnosed with cancer. And yet how many stories do we see where people say it's the scariest situation they ever ran into? But man, do they see it as a gift. They saw that situation as a gift to them because it helped them deepen their view of life. I've shared this before already, but parents with special needs, like what parent would want their child to have special needs? And yet it's parents oftentimes with special needs, they are the most beautiful, empathetic people you'll ever meet. It just shapes the core of who they are because they had to care for a child that had special needs for them. Or I remember hearing a story about a wife who was married to her husband for 10 years and he suddenly died of a heart attack. And even though devastating, she'll be grieving the rest of her life she sees this moment as this is a moment where I really needed to dive into Jesus and my need for him all the more. They would have never chosen these situations in their life, but they look back and they see God was doing something golden. He was transforming this into gold. He is the ultimate alchemist. I know for a lot of you here today, you're going through hardships and you have no idea how it's going to end up. You have no idea where God's leading you, whether it be financially you're struggling, your marriage is falling apart, you're silently struggling through family issues, infertility, whatever it might be, and it's really hard. And this is the question we have to ask ourselves. Do you trust God is the great alchemist? Are you able to recognize he's going to transform this and he's doing something in this circumstance or in you and make it into gold? Genesis 50, it says it like this, quote, you have planned, Joseph says this to his brothers, you have planned evil against me. God planned it for good to bring about the present results. And that's how stage six people view their God. In stages one to four, you have no idea why this hardship's happening. You might rebel against God. You might fall away from God. You might be like, I don't know why, and I have to know why. But in stage six, when something hard is happening, you've been journeying with God long enough where you know, I don't know what's happening, but I just trust God is going to turn this to gold. 
He's forming me. He's doing something. I'm just going to pay attention. This is the type of faith that transcends. This is the type of faith that we're meant to have. This is the type of faith that grows us beyond circumstances. That's the first thing we see, a faith that recognizes the ways of God. Secondly, to have this type of faith, the stage six faith, you need a faith that recognizes the gain in death. Death is not just loss, it's gain. It's interesting, Paul in this letter, he's reflecting upon his prison life, and in verse 20, look what Paul, how he describes it. He says in verse 20, my eager expectation, hope, is that I will not be ashamed about anything, but that now, as always, with all courage, Christ will be highly honored in my body, whether by life or death. Paul's is saying, oh, there's a trial coming, and he hopes he could honor Jesus in this trial. And he's confident later that he's going to be released, but he says, you know, whether I live or whether I die, I just hope Jesus is honored. And this leads Paul to go to this train of thought where he goes, hmm, like, let me weigh out these two options. Is it better to live or better to die? And verse 21, he lays out his, like, thesis statement of Philippians. Look at verse 21. He says, for me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul sees life as with Christ and Paul sees death as gain. Both are good options. Strange. Why does Paul view it that way? To live means Christ. What does Paul mean by that? Verse 22, he elaborates. He says, if I live in the flesh, this means fruitful work for me. I don't know which one I should choose. Paul goes, oh, if I live, I have a lot of good stuff to do. I have a lot of projects I need to take care of. It's a good life to have. That's, oh, I want to live. But then what does he mean by to die is gain? Verse 23, look what he says. I am torn between the two. I long to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Paul is not like, I hate life so much. Life is so hard. There's so much evil. Take me, Lord. Like, he's not like that. Paul's like, dude, life is really good. But death is even better because I get to be with Jesus. My wife and I, when we go on vacations, we're so happy, especially when the kids are not there. Like, oh my gosh, freedom. And we go and we just enjoy the best food, best hotel, all these shows. But I kid you not, day two, we're just looking on the phone at pictures of our kids. We're like FaceTiming our kids. And we're almost like a day two, like, I want to go home. Not because home is better. It's way better where we're vacationing, the stay, the food, the activities. But we want to be with our kids. It's better than even the best vacation spot. And that's how Paul sees it. Life is good here. I love life here. Life is Christ here. But death is better. It's gain because I'm with Jesus. And this is so contrary to how modern people view death, including us in this room. Even if you're a Christian, when we think of death, it's kind of awkward, it's morbid, because we see death as mainly loss, and we don't want to think about it, because it is loss. Ernest Becker, he's somebody who is a sociologist, and I think he says a lot of good things. Where He has this book called The Denial of Death. That I just love this book. And he says, you know, death is so painful, not just for modern people to experience, but to even think about because uh, it's so like the idea of losing your body and fading away, the idea of losing your home, losing your relationship, it's so painful that we try not to even think about it. We try to push it as far away from our minds as possible. That's why most pe- people today, they don't ever die in the home. Most people, they die in hospitals. We just don't want to see that here. One analogy that was given is, it's like all of us were driving in a car that's headed off a cliff. Everyone's in that car, raw driving off a cliff. We're going to all fall off the cliff one day. 
But instead of looking at the cliff, we put all these billboards around us, Netflix, sports shows, entertainment, just driving and enjoying, just driving ahead. And it's not until we are flying off the cliff that for the first time we think, oh, I'm going to die. I'm going to die one day. Because it's really hard to think about that. To imagine, like, oh, we're all going to die. Why is this so hard for us? The idea of death, even Christians who believe in the resurrection. If we're honest, we're different than Paul. For Paul, to live as Christ and to die as gain. For us, to live as Christ and to live also for work and for family and for pleasure. And you don't need death to recognize this. Well, all of us here, you know that you're living for something else besides Jesus because your life collapses when you lose that something. Your life collapses when your career collapses because you built your life on your career. That's why when your career, when you don't get into the grad school program or get into that job, your life falls apart because it's more than Christ for you. Your life collapses when your relationship collapses because you made your life about that relationship. That's why you don't want to die because that relationship matters the most to you. Your life collapses when your family passes away because for you, you li- your life is built on your family. And because of that, your life is going to feel like this series of collapses all the time because you're building your life on things that naturally collapse. And that's where for Paul, it's a little bit different. To live as Christ, and because to live as Christ, die is gain, because I'm going to be with Jesus. Because for Paul, Christ was not just a part of his life, it was his life. And that's why Paul, he's able to find joy in, in, in his prison cell without a career, without his friends, without even the prospect of death, because he built his life upon something that cannot be taken away. Jesus Christ risen awaiting him to be with him. And he is joyful because of that. Do you all know what the best years of somebody's life is? I know I talked about marriage earlier, but what about just your life? What's like the prime years? Like this is the best years of your life. Most people, if you're an American, you see it as your 20s and your 30s. That's why you post Instagram posts, turning 20, turning 30, and you have no shame posting it. Nobody posts about their 40s, their 50s. When you turn 40 or 50, it's like, oh, life's about to end. My life is over. Because for us, as Americans, we feel like, oh, life is about being healthy, it's about physical beauty, and it's about productivity. And all those peak in your 20s and 30s. So after you turn 30, it's all downhill for us. And we're really sad for the rest of our life. But do you guys know what the actual happiest years are of a person's life? Talk to any older person who lived their life well. Or again, this is all over. This is, you can find this on The Guardian or even New York Times. They have stats where they surveyed people. Like, what's like the happiest decade of your life? You guys know what number one is? The best years of your life. Your 60s. People are the happiest in their 60s. I'm not sure if because the kids are gone. I don't know if it's because they're retired. Who knows? But they're just so happy in their 60s. You guys know what the second best decade of people's lives are? Where they're the most happy and satisfied? 70s. They're so happy in their 70s. You guys know what the third one is? 50s. That means most of us here in this room, we haven't even reached close to the happiest age of our life. If, depending on what the meaning of life is for you, if you have the culture's view of life, which is, oh, the best time is to be productive, look beautiful, 20s and 30s are your peak. And it's all downhill from here. And a lot of us, you have subscribed to that mentality, which is why you are sad when you turn 40 and 50. 
wise people, people who've experienced life, they're like, no, 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 no. It's in your 50s, 60s, 70s. That's the good life. You learn to slow down. You learn to appreciate what really matters. You learn to not regret the past or worry about the future. You just live in the present. That's what wise people know. But even wise people, one sad thing is you're still going to lose everything because you're going to die. And that's where Paul, he takes it up a notch, a different level. Where for Paul, the best time of your life is not your 2030s. It's not even your 50s, 60s, 70s. The best time of your life is what happens after your 70s, after your 80s. And the reason why Paul finds this is that true life, it's not even life here, it's the life to come. Because for Paul, he knows the story of the Bible so well, and he knows Jesus so well that he cannot wait for the real story to play out. Anybody familiar with the TV show Invincible on Amazon Prime? Oh, so good. All the guys, for some reason, are raising their hand. Invincible, it's a great show. Steven Yoon, Sandra Oh, J.K. Simmons, they voice it. I remember I didn't really care for that show until somebody said, hey, you got to watch the show. I watched it. Amazing. Excellent show on Amazon Prime. And I remember after season one was over, I was like, dude, that was such a good season. And I have a friend, uh, Vincible is actually based on a graphic novel. The whole series is already over. My friend told me, like, dude, you don't know anything yet. Like, dude, trust me, season one is nothing. There's going to be so many good seasons coming. Like, you watch out. He's, like, excited for the next few seasons because he knows what's coming up. And in some way, this is Paul. Paul's like, you think this is the best life? You don't know nothing. Because Paul, he knows the story. He knows the story of Scripture so well that he knows the best is to come. And he write, the way he describes it is the Bible, it's like a five-act Shakespearean play. And it's on the screen here. I've showed this before, but I think it's just really helpful to imagine. This is the story of Scripture. Act one is creation. Act two is the fall. Act three, Israel. Act four, Jesus. Act five, the church. Paul and all of us, we are living in Act 5 right now. It is good. It is bad. It is a mixture of goodness of God and also the sinfulness and fallenness of man. But what makes us able to endure is that there is another act after this. Act 6, the new heavens and the new earth. And so even though there is tragedy and pain in Act 5, what awaits us is this great act that's far longer than anything else we've experienced, far more joyful. And because Paul knows this, he's like, that's gain. I look forward to those seasons. Do you have a faith strong enough where you could look death in the eye and say, this is hard, it's lost, but there is gain awaiting for us? This is hard. This takes a strong, mature faith. Because death, you're going to face it one day. You're going to fly off that cliff. And their billboards are going to be all gone. And the only type of faith that could sustain you, it's not stages one to four. It's not that type of faith that could help you. To face death in the eye, including in your family, amongst your friends, you have to know the story like Paul does. You have to see faith. It's something that helps us understand death is gain. There's a greater story awaiting for us. And that's why people in stage six, they are not scared to die because their life is built on Christ and their story is shaped by the story of scripture. This is stage six faith, a faith that sees death as gain. Lastly, what kind of faith is it that we need to endure life is a faith that recognizes the true way of life. 
So this is the greater stage that we're awaiting for, stage six. But until then, what does life look like for us now? And that's where Paul, he writes in verse 20, an interesting phrase. Again, so we can look back at that verse one more time. Paul says, my eager expectation and hope is that I will not be ashamed by anything, but that now as always with all courage, Christ would be highly honored in my body, whether by life or by death. So Paul sees it where, hey, as long as I'm here though, I'm going to honor Jesus. Either do my life as I'm living, or even as I die, I'm going to honor Jesus. How do we honor Jesus in our bodies with our life and our death? And Paul, he kind of spells it out a little bit for us. One is we honor Christ in our lives by dedicating it to serving others with our life. This is how Paul views the rest of his life. If you were to die right now, how would you feel? What, what would you kind of like dread? Like, I, I'm down to die because I want to go to heaven, but can I get married first? Can I have kids first? Can I travel Europe first? That's like kind of the things that we want because again, our life is filled with all these desires and attachments to this world. Paul though, he's like, I could die, but you know, there's so many people that I need to pour into and I think I'm needed for that. Look at verse 24, 25, what Paul says. He says, to remain in the flesh, it's more necessary for your sake, Philippians. Since I am persuaded of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy and faith so that because of my coming to you again, your boasting Christ Jesus may abound. That's his hope. I need to stick around because I need to pour. There's a lot of y'all. There's a lot of projects. The projects are people. And I need to pour into your faith. I want to see you mature. I want to see you grow. And that's what my life is about. That's how Paul sees it. And that's why he wants to be released. That's what life in Christ is like. And this is not a duty for Christ. It's not an obligation to live as Christ according to Paul. This is true life to pour into others. And Paul, he doesn't see this as a dread. This is something that true life is all about. This is stage six faith where you discover the most joyful way to live is to serve others. This is what David Brooks calls the second mountain. The first mountain is all about your ego and career. The second mountain is pouring into others in service. This is what Ronald Reiheiser calls the second stage of discipleship. The first stage is all about building up your life. The second stage is giving up your life. And there's a unique joy that comes from that. And we know that because that's how Jesus Christ lived his life. When Jesus came to this world, he did not come to accrue for himself a career or an ego, but he gave himself up to other people, pouring himself out to other people, giving his life to people, and he was the most joyful human being to ever walk on this earth. And when you recognize that Jesus Christ, he did that not just for people, but for you, pouring his life out for you, that's when we recognize that this is the life we are also called to live, the life of Jesus being poured out to others. Pastor Abraham Cho, he says it like this, quote, when the supernatural love of God fills the human heart with a self-sacrificing love, it produces a self-sacrificing life. My parents, I mentioned again, you know how they moved us to Glendora? Super resentful. Now I'm cool with it. In fact, now I am appreciative of my parents because I know what my parents are trying to do. They try to move us to Glendora in California to be safe. Because Korea back then, impoverished, they didn't know the job market. They just picked up their bags and they moved us there so that we could have a new life. And they moved us to Glendora because they wanted us to be assimilated to the culture. They didn't want to go to an Asian town because they thought we'd forever be like fobs who were like marginalized. And they went through that when they were business owners. They moved us to Glendora so that we could learn and be assimilated to the culture. It didn't work. The plan totally failed. But I look back at that, like, you know, I really appreciate that by my parents. Like they're flawed, but they had a lot of love and sacrifice that they were trying to do for us. And because of that, like, I want to honor my parents. There's like zero begrudgment against my childhood these days. 
because I just recognized the sacrifice that they'd done for me. It's not a duty for me to serve them. It's really a joy and a desire. And this is how you know the gospel came into your life in this way. When Jesus Christ, he didn't just serve, but he served you. And in response, you now want to serve others. Is this how you're living your life? Some of you right now, you've been living your Christian life for a long time, and you are bored to death of your faith. It is so boring to live following Jesus. Have you ever considered Jesus looks at you going, yeah, your faith, it is boring. Have you ever considered Jesus looking at you going, he is bored to death of your faith. Because you're, you're not flourishing at all. It's not activated. You're not depressed. You're not flourishing. You're just like in this weird middle space of like languishing. Because your faith is not being activated. You're just kind of cruising in this like neutral space of just like, I love Jesus, but you're not really living for him. It's boring to you. And it's probably boring to Jesus. When was the last time you met with someone for coffee? Not a close friend, but just like, hey, I just want to meet with this brother. I want to meet with this sister. And let's just mutually encourage our faith. When was the last time discipleship was on your radar to disciple people or to be discipled? When's the last time you evangelized to somebody? Not since mission training for some of y'all. When's the last time you evangelized and did something with your faith? Mentor people, desire to grow. If your life is not filled with that, no wonder Jesus is boring to you. Jesus is bored with you too, probably. It's boring. Paul, he was dragged away in a basket, hiding out from the city. The apostle Paul, he was always running from death. Possible, he was always engaging different people because he was living out his faith. And that's what it means to live out our faith, to activate and to walk with Jesus by serving others, pouring into others more than your personal hobbies. You're pouring also into other people because you discover that's what true life is. We honor Christ with our lives by serving others. But also, lastly, we honor Christ in our death by worshiping him. Verse 13, Paul says a phrase that I just want us to look at real quickly and then we'll close. Paul says, um, everyone, the imperial guard, they all know about him because he is in, I am in Christ. That phrase in Christ, that is Paul's favorite phrase to describe a Christian. To be in Christ, it means that you are in union with him. You are in his presence and everybody in the jail cell, they all knew Paul was in Christ because he was just in the presence of God all the time. And that's what stage six is like. You just sense his presence all the time. And that's the one thing that we'll be doing here on earth that will continue in heaven, just worshiping and being in the presence of God. That's why I really love this. I'm still chewing on this. Dallas Willard, he's a thinker and philosopher. He says, you know, when you're a Christian and you experience God's presence all the time here on earth, when you die, you don't even know you died. You're just in the presence of God. What you were doing while you're on earth. I just imagine the day when Lena's grandmother passes away when she's older, I just imagine she's just going to wake up and it's going to feel like a Tuesday morning. So, oh, where's Lena? Like she's just going to think it's normal because she's just in the presence of God all the time. And that's how we honor Christ, even in our deaths, where there, it's a doorway to just being more and more with Jesus because we are in Christ here and we are fully in Christ in the new heavens and new earth to come. Why do few, so few people experience stage six? Why is this something that's, man, only a few people are able to enjoy Jesus in their 50s, their 60s, their 70s, this type of peace and joy that transcends all of life? Why does that happen? It's because of the way you choose to spend your 20s, 30s, and 40s. You do not automatically become like Jesus in your 50s and 60s. It's not a switch. 
I tell dating couples all the time, just because you're dating, it's not going to switch to marriage where all of a sudden you're husband and wife. You have to choose right now to choose to love each other, and that's what will continue on in marriage. Same thing with your life with Jesus. It's not going to switch in your 50s and 60s where all of a sudden peace and calmness and love. It all depends on how you choose your life right now to walk with Jesus. You could be off the path. You could just be like, I'm going to do my own thing. Don't be surprised what happens in your 50s and 60s. That's where the bitter old man comes in. That's where the anxious worry person comes in. But follow Jesus right now. Invite him into your life right now. Take whatever step you're in, wherever path you're in, wherever journey part you're in. But keep moving forward. Because the faith that you have right now, it cannot sustain you for the realities of your 50s, 60s, and 70s. Life gets hard. But Jesus gets more and more beautiful in the midst of the hardships. But it all begins right now for you, for me, how we spend our life and how we choose to walk with Jesus here. And so as I invite the praise team up, and we're going to have a little bit of time to pray. Can I just pray for us? And we want to invite Jesus to just speak to us wherever we're at and to journey with us as we end this series of faith. And so let me just pray for us, and then we'll have a, a little bit of space for us to all pray and respond in prayer. So let's pray. Father, I just lift up our church to you. And I know for all of us here, this might feel far from us, the way we're reading how faith lives out in the Apostle Paul's life, the way stage six faith looks like. For some of us, this sounds great, but it also sounds really far removed. But I do pray that we could see by the power of your spirit, you, O oh Lord, are able to change and mature and grow our faith into a type of faith that surpasses all circumstances. But help us to see it begins now. So Lord, would you speak to us now and help us, Lord, to speak to you on how we, O oh Lord, need to grow in this season. In your son's name, amen.